Thanks, CY. If you want to leave your Bibles open and your outlines there, it'll help you as we get through uh, this great passage tonight. Uh, in Maori culture, so I'm told, where you are from is far more important than your name. I think that's a great thing. Uh, and so, at the beginning of a gathering in Maori culture, Maori introduced themselves by what's called a mihimihi. Uh, it's a short introduction where they share their whakapapa, their, their genealogy and their ancestral ties. Uh, they also usually identify specific geographical features associated with their tribal area, including uh, their manga, their river, their mountain, sorry, their awa, their river, their moana, their sea. Uh, they might also identify their waka, their ancestral canoe, their iwi and their hapu, their tribe and subtribe. And the last thing that's introduced in this kind of formal introduction is the thing that's considered the least important, and that is their name. So please bear with me. I want to try something for a moment. Uh, kia ora. Uh, katu katoa. Ko Jesus te rangitara. Ko jetstar te wanga. Ko kikaranga mangi te manga. Ko Hawkesbury te awa. Ko Christ te iwi. Ko Hillsden te hapu. Ko Auckland evi te whanau. Ko Rowan Hillsden ahu. Greetings, hello to you all. Uh, my chief is Jesus. My canoe is Jetstar. <laughs> my mountain is the Blue Mountains. My river is the Hawkesbury. My tribe is Christ. My sub-tribe is Hillsden. My family is Auckland AV Church. I am Rowan Hillsden. That's how you introduce yourself in Maori culture. Now, the thing that I love about the mihi-mihi is that it's really, it's just so helpfully rooting you in your ancestry, in who you are is linked to your ancestors. There's just nothing like this in Australian culture. Australian culture don't do it. If an Australian was to introduce themselves, the best thing I can come up with is the way that it happens in the movie The Castle. Have you seen The Castle? Show of hands, who's seen The Castle? There should be a thing on the screen. There you go. And who's seen that? Show of hands again. Ah, it's disappointing. You all need to go home and watch it. And you'll just understand me a lot more. But at the start of the castle, it starts like this. G'day, my name's Dale Kerrigan, and this is my story. <laughs> That's it, right? That's how Australians introduce themselves. What I love about the Mihi Mihi is it recognizes that who we are is tied to our ancestors, to our beginnings, to our roots. And over the next 10 weeks, we as a church will be looking at the book of Genesis, which really means beginnings, <laughs> in a series that we've titled Mihi Mihi. We'll be looking at it be- because... Our beginnings, our ancestors, define who we are. And really, this book of the Bible helps us to understand who you are and who I am. So often I'm told by the world around us that the Bible is just some irrelevant storybook, a mishmash of fairy tales brought together by humanity just to make people feel good about themselves. It's just not relevant. It's got nothing to do with me. But it's my hope that through this series you'll see that Genesis not only defines you, but it shapes who we are. Not just our ancestors, but you and me. We're going to see today that this ancient piece of literature actually talks about you. You and me. It's talking about us. You'll see that it predicted what would happen tonight here in Auckland, in New Zealand, that you and I would be here speaking about this very man that we're going to meet in the passage this evening. And you're going to say that to understand who we are, no matter what you believe about God and His world, to understand who we are must begin with who our ancestors and who our God is. But before it's about us, 
we see our story is about God. So we need to understand the story that God has laid out so far. So come with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Let me take you up to Genesis 12, where we're starting. We actually did chapters 1 to 11 back in 2012. If you were here, you'd know that. I think there's some of them on our website. You can jump on there and catch up if you want. But let me just take you through the story so far. The story so far. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before the Bible is about you or me or anyone else, it's about God. It's His story. In the beginning, God. Not just any God, not what some people would like to think their God is, but there is a true and living God who made everything. He made the universe that we live in. He made you and me and He sustains us every moment of the day. This is the God that is speaking in this book to us tonight. The focus of chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis is the focus is on the world that God made. It's not interested in how the world was made, whether it was done in six literal days, or whether it was done in longer time periods. That's not the focus of the first two books of the Bible. The focus is that God made them, and they were made for His purposes and plans, and that He is in control. We were made by God for relationship with God. That's what we learn. But then we get to chapter 3, and we find out that For Adam and Eve, God's first creation, His first people, knowing God wasn't enough. They weren't satisfied with knowing Him. They wanted to be like Him. Not just know Him, but be like Him. They wanted to be gods. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to determine good and evil. They wanted to set the rules. And so they rejected God's rule and chose to live their own way. And the Bible calls that sin. Rejecting the true and living God, rejecting the one that gives us life has horrible consequences and that God says, okay, you don't want me, you don't get me. And so they were removed from the Garden of Eden. They were kicked out in what we would call a fall. I think Lachlan talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, I kept forgetting it. What is it? Crash and burn. This is the moment of crash and burn for humanity when we reject the true and living God. And from Genesis 3 onward, what we have is... God's epic quest to bring humanity back into relationship with Himself. From that moment on, it's about what God is doing to fix up our mess. Throughout the first 10 chapters then, we see this repeated pattern. Mankind reject God. The Bible calls that sin. Uh, We fall short of what we were designed to do. Then God, he, He judges mankind. He says, this is the punishment that you get for rejecting me. This is what happens. And so Adam and Eve get booted from the garden. And then... Each time, God shows His grace. Now, grace just means an undeserved gift. Any gift really is undeserved. If you've worked for it, it was a a work. It wasn't grace. But here we're seeing that God is generous to people who reject Him time and time again. This God is an amazing God, so unlike you and me, or at least unlike me. When people keep hurting me, I want nothing to do with them. I get myself out of there. But this God keeps coming back because He loves us. And we see this pattern, rejection of God, punishment, judgment, and then God's grace shown to people and they come back around and then they do it again and again. Uh, Adam and Eve sin. They're kicked out of the garden. Judgment. Grace. Um, God uh, gives them a mark of protection. Uh, We get, sorry, God promises, not with Adam and Eve, God promises that He will send one uh, who will crush the serpent's head. There's grace. There's this idea. He covers their nakedness. Well, the next bit we get to Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel sin. Judgment. Uh, Cain is kicked out of the land and and he's forced to wander the earth as a a wanderer, but God gives him the mark of protection so that 
God will protect him throughout that time. We get to Genesis 6, and we see that the problem of human rebellion is not just a little problem. It's not just a little kind of issue with humanity that we're like, oh, you know, yeah, sure, sometimes we do a little bit wrong. Have a listen to God's kind of assessment of humanity. Genesis 6, verse 11, it's on the screen. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. How's that? Glad you came to church tonight. Happy night. But God's take on the world at this point in history is that everyone's stuff. This is not a little problem. The whole earth was corrupt and rebelling against the true and living God. And so he sends a flood to wipe out this creation who keep wanting to live in his world in different ways that he has set up, in ways that are horrible to one another, in ways that are terrible. But he brings one man and his family, Noah, through the flood. He takes with him uh, the animals and restarts in a new beginning and shows his grace to humanity and repopulates the earth through him. You see the pattern. (laughs) Rebellion, judgment, grace. But then we get to Genesis 11 and what we hear about is the Tower of Babel. We see in this chapter that humanity are trying to work together to produce a name for themselves. They're, They're working together to make the world great again, right? That's what some would say that they were doing. Let's make a name for ourselves and build the empire of humanity. Now, now so often I hear people say that if we could only just work together as humanity, you know, if we could all sing sing hands, hold hands and sing kumbaya, there you go. If we could all just kind of hold hands and work together as humanity, imagine the good we could do. Have you heard that? You heard people say, let's actually join forces and do good for the world. But it's interesting to note, that unity in humanity is something that very much was at the heart of the Tower of Babel. But it was not good. God did not like their unity uh, because their unity was misdirected. It was an atrocity to Him. Unity that aims for anything else than the plans and purposes of the true and living God is actually an atrocity to Him. It's a world living in rebellion against Him. Unity that aims for anything other than the plans and purposes of of the true and living God is an atrocity. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine a father who had built a business. The business was a cracker of a business. It was making great profit. It was doing good in the community. It was going so well. It was expanding. It was great. He got to the age of retiring and his kids came in and just took over. They ignored the father's legacy. They ignored his vision and mission and thinking they knew better about how to take this company forward. They do a 180 degree um, turn on all the things that he set up and end up bankrupting, bankrupting the business. That's what humanity has done. We've ignored the God who has made them, thinking that they knew better. They sought to make their name great rather than God's and they placed themselves in the position of God and built a tower to say, look how great we are. Look at what we can achieve together against God. They were setting themselves up as God. Tower of Babel, that's exactly what happened. Humanity tried to make a name for itself. And so God judges them. He says, this can't happen. This will be horrible because you set up a world that's horrible, a world that you're in control of, that you set what is right and wrong. And that's, that's not how I have made it. And that will be an atrocity. And so he judges the world. He, he, he causes everyone to speak in different languages and that confuses them. And humanity spread across the face of the earth. But as you read through Genesis 11, used to this familiar pattern, there's something that's very absent. 
You hear their rebellion against God. We've heard that in the pattern that had gone before. You hear God's judgment of scattering. We'd heard that before. But there is no grace. There is no grace. You hear no promise of God, no undeserved kindness come in this chapter at all. And the question for us, the readers of Genesis is, have we gone too far? Have we wronged the true and living God one too many times? And now humanity is stuffed. Is this the end for humanity? Now, I don't know what's brought you to church tonight. I don't know what your week has been like or what you think about God and Christianity and Jesus. But maybe you're finding yourself in a very similar position to the reader of Genesis right now. Maybe you're thinking, look, I'm not really a God person. I'm, I'm not like him. Perhaps... You feel like you've blown it. You've crossed the line one too many times. You think this God, you know, there's no point me trying with him because, well, he couldn't love me if he knew what I had done. The good news is God is nothing like you or me. You might think you might not forgive yourself, but the God of the Bible is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He is like no other His goodness, His desire to love you, to restore you, to restore you to relationship with Him is so big, so radical, so nothing like you have ever seen. How do we know that? How do we know that's what God is like? Because we see it here in chapter 12 of Genesis. We see God's grace given to a man named Abram. And the hopes of humanity are pinned on this family. We see God's generous grace. But what we see is more than that. We see God's grace having implications for you and me. As we read through this story, I said earlier, we'd start to see ourselves in this story. We'd see how it was about us. Uh, When I was a kid, um, my my parents gave me this book that was one of those books where, I don't know if you might have seen these before, you might have had someone give it to you, um, where you can write away to the publishing company and they print a book. And in the story, they put your kids' names. So like your name is in a book, like, you know, Rowan went down the street with his friends, Alex and Andrew, and you know, and it's kind of like, it's a story about, and, and your parents give them all your friends' names. And so you can imagine what it's like. And, you know, Andrew and Rowan and Lachlan, they went down and there it was. And, you know, and so you read through this story and you're like, oh, this is about me. Like, kind of feel like I'm famous, right? Has anyone ever been given a book like that? Oh, great. Thank you. I'm not alone. (laughs) Otherwise, they're like, man, your parents are weird. Anyway, in case you're listening, I love you, mum and dad. Um, As you read Genesis 12, the thing that amazes me is that our names haven't been put in later, that we actually see ourselves in this book, that God is speaking about us today. As he shows his grace to a guy called Abraham, he talks about his promise that this guy will be great. How great? So great that we'd still be talking about his name today. But then we hear the bit that is actually about you and me. Genesis 12 verse 3. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That is you and me. If you are a people, a person, and you are on the earth... And it's talking about us, that through Abraham, all the people on earth will be blessed. You're like, stop it. Are you serious? I want us to stop for a second. No matter what you think tonight of God or Jesus or Christianity, you need to recognize that this book, written somewhere around 3,000 years ago, is talking about you today. 
It's claiming to speak of you and saying that what happened to Abraham has got implications for your life and who you are. Whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, an academic, or an apple picker, no matter what you do, anyone who says the Bible isn't relevant for me just hasn't read it. They're wrong. You cannot claim it's not relevant when it claims to speak about you. It's my hope today that you will get a hint of how profoundly relevant this book is for you and for me, and that that will shape the way we live and who we trust and where we find our security. But before we get to us, we need to hear Abram's story. So come with me and hear the story of a man named Abram. Abram is is probably the second most important human of all history. Uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians all find their heritage in this man. They all say they get their beginnings with Abram. His name is mentioned almost 300 times in the Bible. 300 times, that's a lot. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, 11 of them mention Abram by name. Uh, In Hebrews 11, if you look at the book of Hebrews, there's this great chapter that talks about like, all the great ones of the faith. You know, if it was a Marvel cartoon and have all the kind of people there lined up, right? You kind of go Captain America and you know, just, I can't go through them all. Uh, but you, you kind of get the picture. Hebrews 11 is the great people of the Christian faith who've taken God seriously at his word. And as you go through the chapter of Hebrews 11, check it out later. Most of the heroes get one verse about what they did or they get mentioned in there. Moses, the one who wrote Genesis, he gets six verses. But then they get to Abram. He gets 12 verses of chapter 11, right? On the Marvel cartoon, he's the one front and center. It's about him. And you're like, whoa, this dude is kind of, he's pretty key. The author of Hebrews thinks he is basically the prototype of the man of faith. He's the one who takes God at his word. He's the one who trusts God. And so as you come across this Abram in Genesis, you kind of expect him, if you've read your New Testament, to be a pretty good guy. You think he's going to be one of those guys that he's going to come from a good family. He's going to have all these great things about him because God used him and he's just awesome. But it's just not what we find at all. In fact, that's not what God does. He doesn't seem to choose the awesome ones. He seems to choose those without hope. Firstly, we hear that Abram is from the most uncreatively named place on earth. I kid you not. I mean, when they came across Ur of the Chaldeans, how did they name that? What are we going to call this place? Uh, brilliant. Lock it in. Ur of the Chaldeans. Where are you from? Ur. Oh, cool. Like, who would live in a place called Ur? Well, actually, we know a fair bit about Ur. Uh, because of the work of an archaeologist by the name of Sir Charles Woolley. You can write that down and check that out later. Uh, Ur today is in the middle of Iraq. Um, they found archaeologists these bricks that were dated around 2000 BC, which is the time of Abram. We know of this city, the, 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 the remains are there. And what we know about Ur was that it really, it wasn't a beautiful city, sorry to say. It was a horrible city. It was smack in the middle of Babylon, where the Tower of Babel had stood as some kind of half-finished monument to mankind's rebellion against God. Now, these people were pagan, moon-worshipping people. They had nothing to do with the God who made them. They didn't reference the, their true ancestors, the one who had made them. Then we hear about Abraham's dad. What was he called? Wait for it. Terah. How's that for a name, right? 
Now, I know different people, they choose different names for their kids, and people choose all sorts of different names, right? You get people who call their kids Apple and Blossom, and you know, weird names. I don't know. If you've got, yeah, I'm just going to stop there before I get myself in trouble. But if you call your kid Terra, right, do you reckon he's going to turn out? Not great. Now, some of you go, hang on, Rowan. Now, Terra, that's it's written in Hebrew. So you can't, it, didn't actually, it doesn't actually mean Terra. What it means is wild goat. <laughs> Do you know that? So great. Call your kid wild goat. Let's go, man. How do you think wild goat turns out? Well, let's listen to the words of Joshua. Joshua 24. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terra, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. Terah was a man who knew nothing of the God who made him, who worshipped false gods, a man who was committed to worshipping Satan. For if you aren't worshipping the true and living God, that is who you are serving, says John. One of the side points that we need to think through here is sometimes we can, we can think that because our family or our history was bad, or our dad was a dropkick, that we're going to turn out as a chip off the old block, a dropkick too that our future is shaped, is kind of guided and pushed by who our parents were. And while we are shaped by our ancestors, we are not victims of their history. We are not victims of their deeds. Lots of people think Abram was a Jew. He wasn't. Well, it's not to start with. He was a Babylonian. The Jews didn't even exist yet. And in the Bible, whenever you read Babylonian, you need to think people who hate God. It's what they're consistently shown to be. This was Abram. This is his family, his nation. You're like, whew, okay. This is not really from the strong suit of like Noah, who seemed to be one who was kind of keen to serve God. His family seems like a bunch of dropkicks. There's nothing intrinsically good about Abraham, about this man, his people, or his parents. Nothing good there at all. But here's the thing. God chooses Abram. God chooses him. Despite his history, despite his family, through no work of his own, God chose Abram because he wanted to choose Abram. Because he wanted to bring about his plans and purposes through someone that would be very clear that it was not about his strength, but God's strength. God chose Abram. See, so often people think Christianity is about being a good person. If you're a Christian, the way you become a Christian and be a Christian is by doing good things. You know, you, you do the, the right things, you hang out with the right people, you be a good Christian person, and that makes you good enough for God. And that's not what Christianity is about at all. Christianity is about the work of God, bringing people who rebel against Him back into relationship with Himself through what He does, not through what we do. What makes Abram a somebody is that he trusted God. When God spoke to him, he took him at his word. When God chose him, he said, okay, not stuff you. So have a look at the way Abram responds to what God says. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him. God's first word to Abram was this, go. <laughs> How's that for the first word? Leave, leave your family, leave your country. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine the upheaval for this guy? The loss of relationships, the loss of income, of livelihood, of his culture, of everything he'd, he'd known, his, his people's customs, his history. It's just go. This God rocks up and says, go, leave. This is an age where there's no Skype. You can't be like, oh, just call back home. Hey, guys. You know, there's no last-minute Jetstar flights to get you back somewhere different. You can't do that. You can't just put your people on a plane. Planes didn't exist. There is no email to email back to the family. It's get out and forget that. God's call to Abram is a total cutoff from his past. Leave the world that's in ruins. Turn your back on the murderous ways of Cain, the arrogance of Lamech, the evil that flows from the heart. Leave this race behind that tries to make a name for itself in a in rebellion against me. Leave the comfort of your people, the security of your family. Leave the world as you know it and put your security in my word. Trust me. The God of the Bible calls Abraham to trust him. And that's what Abram does. Not knowing where he was going, he trusted in the word of this God. There was no arm twisting. All right, God, I'll go with you so long as you give me an A in this next exam. Okay, God, I'll leave behind those securities so long as you make life, you know, way, way, way better in every single way and it works out. There was no bargaining from Abram. There was no complaining. Abram said, okay. It's interesting. When you hear God speak, when you are faced with the true and living God who made the universe, those that get who he is don't go, no stuff you. They say, yes, sir. Because they trust him. They take him at his word. That's what makes Abram so great in Hebrews 11. See, throughout the Bible, greatness is depicted not as being perfect, of having all these things to offer from ourselves. The great ones are those that take God at his word, that trust him. Oh, that we would get this. We'd stop trying to be the best and start trusting the perfect one. Start living our life in line with what God says, knowing that he has won, that he is in control, that he is good and that he loves us. Taking God at his word is the right response. Where we often come unstuck, though, even as Christians, is we start kind of molding the promises of God. We take his word and we're like, oh yeah, God loves us, so that means he must want what I want for my life. And we start kind of molding the promises of God rather than doing what God has promised and listening to his word. We start shaping what we want and say it's what God wants. God wants you to have a better life. God wants you to enjoy yourself with who you are. Just be as you are. You know, if you're lazy, just live it up. Be lazy. God made you that way. And we start thinking of all these other ways to live life. If, if God really loved me, then he wouldn't give me any suffering. And so when, when suffering comes, we start to think maybe God isn't true to his word. When did he ever promise we would have no suffering? We must listen to the promises of God, not what we wish he'd promised. Because God knows what's best for us, not ourselves. Remember that. God knows what's best for us, not ourselves. That's why here at Uni Church, we want to be grounded in the word of God. That's why we... Go to the effort of teams putting together those daily Bible readings. So we want you to know what God says to be sure of his promises in the word of God. Uh, to, to be able to understand the scriptures. We want to train each and every person, not just to listen to the guy out the front. Like you don't want to know what's going on in my head or my ideas. We want to know what God has to say through his word. 
So we want to train every person to be able to handle the word of God for themselves, to understand what God is saying. That's why we keep pointing people back to trust the word of God and the bare word of God. Abraham, Abraham at this moment, trusted the bare word of God and he did it. But you've got to say, you and I, we have far more than the bare word of God, don't we? For we have the way that God has acted throughout history. As Lachlan read Psalm 45 at the start of the service, we're reminded of God's actions in history. We're reminded that we respond in praise and, and prayer to this God because of how faithful He's been to His promises. We've seen God's love for us. We have seen 4,000 years of God's love for humanity, of Him keeping His promises. Abram, if, you know, he had an excuse. Well, who do you think you are? Us. We have no excuse. For we have seen how faithful this God has been. We have no reason to not believe. Abram hears and Abram goes to a land he knows nothing about because he trusts the word of God. And all he has to cling to is the promise of God. But what a promise it is. Did you see it? Genesis 12 verse 2. This is the promise of promises. This promise shapes the whole Bible from this point forward. Everything from Genesis 12 onward in the Bible is about this promise, seeing it expanded and fulfilled and looked back over. So come with me, Genesis 12, verse 2. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. <laughs> what a promise. I imagine if God said that to you, you're like, whoa, snap. I don't know. Like, that's crazy. I will make you into a great nation. I'm just like a guy. And you know, what do you mean a great nation? If you see my dad, he's like a wild goat. <laughs> I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. You're like, what? All the people on earth will be blessed through you? His promise guides the rest of human history. Of what God is doing about the problem of a rebellious humanity who need to be brought back into relationship with Him. And the first thing we need to note about that promise is who does it. Did you see that? It doesn't say, Abraham, I want you to make yourself into a great nation. I want you to go around and have little stickers that you can put on your camel that says, make the nation great again. (laughs) You know, all I want you to do is just to tweet about how awesome you are. And kind of consistently do that. So people are like, well, this guy's got some crazy stuff, but I'm going to kind of follow him and see what he's like. And there's none of that. He doesn't say, look, I want you to work out how to um, be a blessing to the world around you. And you can go and use your superior intellect and abilities to make the world great. Uh, He doesn't say, I want you to go and work out how to bless the entire world. He doesn't say any of that. God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless you and through you, I will make, bring blessing to the whole world. This is a promise that God will do. It's got nothing to do with Abraham and his response. It's got all to do with God who is so generous and loving 
and faithful. In stark contrast to Abram's parents who tried at Babel to make a name for themselves, God chooses Abram. God will make his name great. God will make a great nation. If Genesis 11 is the city of man, then Genesis 12 is the beginning of the city of God. It's the city that God builds. It's a city that you and I get to be a part of. And it's a city of great, great blessing. The promises are amazing. We see some of them happen. Uh, We see that his name becomes great. Do you know that through Abram, from his line, kings would come? Other nations would call Abram a prince. Genesis 23 verse 6, if you want to check it out later. A thousand years later, King David, Abram's son, grandson, right? He will be the greatest king of the Old Testament. His son Solomon would be the wisest person on the face of the planet. All other nations would flock to him. And here we are, 4,000 years later, talking about a 75-year-old Iraqi dude. Like, we are, right? Right here is the fulfillment of this. Abraham thought at that moment, yeah, I reckon there'll be this group of kind of people at Auckland University in New Zealand, kind of sitting there. No, he had no idea, but God does it. God is the God who keeps his promises. But as we think through what this promise says, this promise says that they will have a great nation. He will make his name great and blessing will come to all the earth. And if you're honest, if you sit back right now, I don't think all of these promises have come to their fulfillment. Do you? The problem is we don't see all of it happen. Today, Israel, Abram's descendants, are no longer a great nation. I'm sorry to say. They're hardly the superpower of the world, are they? They're a nation that had to be reinvented. Their land, the promised land, the one that God more clearly spells out, the land that they're going to go into, has been the subject of no end of fighting. Right now, Israel don't occupy all of the land that was promised to them. That land hasn't fully happened yet. And it's hard to see how blessing has come to the whole earth through Israel. How have Israel blessed you in your week this week? It's not much, right? How do we make sense of this God who had been faithful to his promises? Yet it seems that these things kind of half happened in the history of Israel, but then kind of fell apart. And now we see just a pale, pale shadow of what these promises were. Well, in Galatians 3.16, in the New Testament, Paul helps us to understand what these promises were about. And to understand them, we need to understand the story of Jesus. Let me show you. Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. To understand Abraham's story, you have to understand that those promises were given not just to Abraham and his seed's descendants, that's what seeds mean, descendants, But the promises were given, all of those promises were given to Abraham's seed singular. That's what Paul is saying. Now, this is scripture, which I think it is. Paul is saying that the promises God gave to Abraham would be fulfilled fully and finally in Jesus. The blessings of the world that were promised to Abraham would come through Jesus. The name that will be made great was Abram, but even greater was the name above all names, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
For he is the name above all names. The promised land will be found not in Israel as just a patch of grass on the West Bank. But as Jesus comes back and creates a new heaven and a new earth that's expanded from just this little patch of grass in, in kind of on the West Bank to being a new earth, a whole earth that is no more mourning or crying or pain that has lived in right relationship with God, with Jesus as its king, the land will be fulfilled by Jesus when he comes back. Blessing would come to the whole world, to you, through Jesus. For he has solved the problem of our rebellion against God. He has dealt with the problem of us turning our backs on the true and living God. The judgment that we deserve has been placed on him. The promise to Abram was that Jesus was coming. Abram's hope, although he didn't know it at that point, was actually Jesus. His faith was in Jesus. The blessing for the whole earth was in Jesus. He didn't know it at the time, but the New Testament makes it clear. We're going to see over the next few weeks as we look through the book of Genesis, how more and more of these promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. As you read your Bible, you'll keep seeing that the New Testament writers say all of this stuff that was happening was a shadow pointing forward to what Jesus would do. We'll see that the Bible is about Jesus. He is the answer to all our questions, the hope for all our fears, the fulfillment of everything that is promised. He's our blessing, our joy, our treasure. He is everything. He is how you and I can experience the promises of God. You know, you start the New Testament. We have there the book of Matthew. And as Matthew opens his account of the gospel, he says this, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. The seed of Abram who would bring blessing to the world is Jesus. What made Abram great was that he took God at his word. He trusted the promises of God. But there's one more thing I want to show you about Abram because it helps us to think about our story and how we respond to this God who is addressing us tonight. There's something that we often miss about Abram and that is that really he was the first gospel missionary. At the age of 75, when most of us would be sitting back and thinking about buying a camper van and cruising around the country, I don't know, and kind of thinking, yeah, I've done my years, I want to settle down. Abram's just getting fired up. He's just starting because he's been captured by this God who has spoken to him. He's been amazed and he wants the rest of the world to know the true and living God, not some pagan moon-worshipping stuff, but the God who made him and the universe. Look at uh, Genesis 12, verse 5. Abram took his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people he had acquired in Haran. And that last little phrase, the people he'd acquired in Haran, it's pretty easy to think that sounds like just slaves. People he'd acquired, they were kind of slaves that were serving him. But most Jewish commentators don't think those people were slaves. They think they were converts, followers, People who believed Abram had heard from the true and living God and who trusted that God would do that and so wanted to join his family. And like, we want to be in on God's new people. We want to be with you. These were people that Abram had gathered by sharing the promises of the true and living God. People said, I'm in. And then Abram, what does he do? He goes to the heart of the enemy's territory, to Canaan. Even more, he goes to the tree of Morah. 
which means teacher, an oracle giver. This is the place that the Canaanites assembled to hear the oracles and the soothsayers and what they received from rustling trees. It was kind of, basically, Abram goes to the middle of a pagan temple and sets up an altar to the true and living God. You're like, whoa, how's that for a culturally relevant missionary? He kind of didn't go in and go, oh, these rustling leaves are made by the true and living God and you've got to understand. He just went, no, boom, this is God. And when God speaks, you listen. He is the true and living God and you've got to listen to this God. He does the same thing in Bethel. Wherever Abram goes, it seems he worships the true and living God. He spews out God's praise. He's been captivated by the God that spoke to him. And here's where it affects our story. It seems to me when you understand what God has offered us, like Abram did, when you get a grip on who God really is, when you see Jesus' fulfillment of all God's promises and that taking him at his word is what life is about, it changes you into a person of mission. It changes you into someone who lives for the praise and glory of the God who made you. It changes your identity. I'm suddenly shaped by my ancestors, by my God who makes me. It destroys the kind of consumer mentality we so often have. You know that, well, what's in it for me attitude. And makes us into people who are willing to leave their nation, their family, their home, their security for the purpose of partnering with a true and living God so that others might get a glimpse of how great he is. Abram recognized the blessings of God. He recognized that he was blessed so that he can bless others. Friends, we have been blessed in so many ways. Everything we have is a gift from God. The only thing we deserve from God is his judgment. Yet God has showered us with blessings, with good things. He's shown us his son. Jesus died in our place. He's offered us forgiveness. Could we be any more blessed than having life that does not end, eternal life offered to us and a new creation? We have so much at our disposal. We have time and resources and money and relationships and friends and houses and cars and clothes and knowledge. And the temptation for us today is to hold on to those things, to turn them into our security. To think, no, I've got this career, I've got this, um, uh, this, this family, I've got this cultural heritage, I've got this thing. And that really defines who I am and makes me kind of stick and stay here. When you recognize who has made us and who is speaking to us in his word. And the security that we have been offered that Jesus died in our place, that he has risen again, that the promises given to Abram are fulfilled in him. And what more security do we need? What is more secure than the word of the God who sustains the universe? <laughs> as you think about the story of your life, as you consider your mihimi, there is nothing richer, nothing more powerful, nothing more defining than the God who keeps his promises. The question for us is, Will you trust him enough to let go of every other defining characteristic and take him at his word? Will you, like Abraham, obey the word of God and go serve Jesus with your life in every area? Put him as number one. 
the great message from Genesis 12 is the God who loves us for no other reason than He loves us. He has shown us that love in Jesus and He's inviting you and me to partner with Him in pointing the world that we live in to Him. Taking Him at His word and saying, I live for you. So tonight, won't you hear what God is saying to you and take Him at His word and trust Him and live every moment, every day for His praise and His glory, knowing that we get to share together in the promises of Jesus when He comes back. Let's pray that God would help us to be people who take Him at His word. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much that You have revealed Yourself to us, that You've not treated us as we deserve. We give You great thanks that You've shown us Your grace so clearly in Your Son, Jesus. As we consider who we are, Lord, we pray that tonight, You'd help us to recognize that you have addressed us in your word. You're calling us to trust you, to see Jesus as the fulfillment of your promises and to put our lives in Jesus' hands as the ruler and king and controller of all that we do. We pray tonight we would be in awe of you, that you would speak to us. And so we ask that you would send us out into your world as people who trust you, as people who want to point the world around us to the true and living God, as missionaries saved and sent by Jesus. We pray that you would show us where we don't trust you, where we do not trust your word, where we think we are in control, and you would help us to place Jesus and his word at the center of our lives so we might live for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to celebrate together as a church family how great it is to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Uh, we're going to do that by sharing in what's called the Lord's Supper. And it's just a reminder of Jesus' death in our place, that he died facing what we deserve so that we could have life, that his blood was poured out so that we didn't need to die. And it's a great reminder that Jesus is coming back. There's a new heaven and a new earth. So if you trust Jesus or tonight you've gone, I want in. <laughs> I've heard, God has addressed me tonight and I want to put him as my king. Then why don't you take and hold on to this, this bread and this grape juice that goes around. And they're just symbols. But what a great way to symbolize that you're saying, yes, I need Jesus' death in my place. I need his blood spilt for me. I trust in him and I look forward to the day he comes back because I am now, if I've asked God to forgive me and I'm trusting in Jesus, I am now in right relationship with him. And I have the promises of God to look forward to, not because of who I am, because of who he is. So why don't you take that, hold on to it, then we'll come together after we've sung this song uh, and we'll eat and drink together. Why don't you stand as we remind one another together of the amazing truths of who our God is and what he's done as we sing. Let's stand and sing.